Today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show, we're going to look at the Baldur's Gate Gazetteer being free for everybody on D&D Beyond. I'm going to do a spotlight on Bigby's Presents Glory of the Giants. We're going to take a look at an excellent book called Adventure Crucible, Building Stronger Scenarios for Any RPG by the game designer Robin Laws. And as part of that, I'm going to dive into some of the adventure scenarios, the adventure themes that I've found to be really, really useful for traditional fantasy D20 RPGs. As part of that, we're going to take a look at adventure models that I love, some of which are incorporated in the Lazy DM's Companion. We are also going to cover more questions from the August 2023 Patreon Q&A, all today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things in RPGs. This show is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to things like Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and 2, the City of Arches Sourcebook, a dedicated Discord server, the monthly Q&A, a whole bunch of exclusive adventures, video previews, and a whole lot more. If you love this show, if you love the work that I do, please consider being a patron of Sly Flourish. And you can find a link to that in the show notes below. And to the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your support. As part of the big push for Baldur's Gate 3, Wizards of the Coast has made the Baldur's Gate Gazetteer free for everybody. You can get this. There's a link in the show notes. So you can get this straight off of D&D Beyond. Anybody that has a D&D Beyond account can go and get this Baldur's Gate Gazetteer. The Baldur's Gate Gazetteer is a part of the Descent into Avernus big campaign adventure that Wizards of the Coast published a couple of years ago. There was a whole section that talks just about the city of Baldur's Gate, and you can get it all for free now. And it's really cool. Like, it's a great big source book of all of the material that you would want to learn about Baldur's Gate. I don't know how tightly it's connected to the Baldur's Gate city that you might find in Baldur's Gate 3. I haven't yet played Baldur's Gate 3. I'm waiting to get the PlayStation version, but I'm very excited for it. But it is a great big section. It's a it's a lot of lot of material. Take a look at all this material. Woo, right? Lots of material. Thousands and thousands and thousands of words, art, all fully edited. It's a great source book. It's a great it's a great supplement that you can pick up. And so go do it. There's no reason not to. It's absolutely free. You go there, you sign up for it, you pick it up, and you've got the Baldur's Gate Gazetteer. If you have the Descent into Avernus campaign book, you already have this because it's included in the back. They did this both for... I, I like this idea a lot, actually. They did this for Water Waterdeep Dragon Heist, and they did this for Baldur's Gate Descent into Avernus. Of, on top of having a big campaign adventure, there was a big chapter of the book that was just dedicated to describing that particular fantasy city. And now we have two of them. Like, we have the Waterdeep city, you know, the Waterdeep section in Waterdeep Dragon Heist covers all of Waterdeep. This one covers Baldur's Gate. The only, the third biggest city, I think, is Neverwinter. And I don't think that there is a Neverwinter source book yet that they have anywhere. I don't think, I don't think there's anything that goes deep into Neverwinter. Who knows? Maybe that's something that we'll we'll see in the future. But it talk, you know, good, beautiful artwork, good maps, lots of description of what's going on in Baldur's Gate. They kind of turned Baldur's Gate into sort of a, 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 a wretched hive of scum and villainy, a little bit more than I think it had been in previous in instantiations of of Forgotten Realms. It's definitely like overtaken by crime lords. There's evil cults that are operating underneath. So you know, I like it. And, you know, neat place. But regardless of like, it, unless the theme bothers you, unless you're like, oh, I like Baldur's Gate when it wasn't such a wretched hive of scum and villainy, I think that it is, I think that it can it can work just fine. And I enjoyed running Baldur's Gate stuff when I was running Descent into Avernus. That part of the adventure actually wasn't so bad as long as you had a good, clear motivation for why they did the things that they did. So it's absolutely free to pick it up. You can go right to D&D Beyond. You can click it, add it to your content, and you have this entire section on the city of the city of Baldur's Gate absolutely free. So really cool. Check that out. Big Bees presents Glory of the Giants. One thing that I want to make clear, the stuff that I spotlight on this show are all products that I like. There are so many role-playing game products coming out now through Kickstarters and through traditional publishing, stuff from big publishers, stuff from small publishers. There's so much material. I get, I mean, dozens a week of different new products that are coming out. I don't have time to spotlight all of the stuff that I love, much less stuff that I don't particularly like. So what that means is when I find a product that I think is worth doing a spotlight in the show, I'm already telling you up front that I like it. I'm already telling you that I've taken a look at it, that I've, I've, I've dug into it, and that I found things in here that I really enjoyed. And that is true with Big B's. Big Beast presents Glory, Glory of the Giants as well. If I didn't think this was a good book, I would not have bothered to even talk about it. But I do think it's a good book. I think it's actually a really outstanding book. And I learned something when I was reading through this book. I learned something about this kind of product 
And prob- I think the, the, the direction and the design that Wizards of the Coast has taken with this kind of product and how it fits into our games and our worlds differently than I had thought of them before. And that's what really got me to think, you know, this is something really special. And it's also not unique in this, that Fizban's Treasury of Dragons and Van Richten's Guide also kind of fell into this this slice and I'm going to I'm going to talk about that slice a little bit because I think it's really important and I think it was a really interesting and good design decision for designing this product. So Big Bees Presents Glory of the Giants is a book focused on giants. It's a 192 page physical book. You can also get it on D&D Beyond and it focuses on all things giants. So it has some character options including a couple of new subclasses. It has some new feats. And then talk about things that you would do in character creation. But then the majority of the book, 100 pages of the 192 pages, I think it's about 100 pages of it, is all lore about giants. It's everything from who giants are in the world, what's their, what's the, the, what's the mythology that surrounds giants in D and D in this in this particular world, how you know the whole thing about the ordning, which if we if you played Storm King's Thunder, Storm King's Thunder is all built around the ordning. And at first, I think a lot of people and myself included was like, I don't need another book about giants. I played Storm King's Thunder. I know all about the giants. And this book talks about the ordning, but then talks about the giants that don't fall into the ordning. There's actually a pretty good focus on the giants and how they relate to things like the elemental princes instead, how they broke away from how they broke away from the giants or how they broke away from the ordning and kind of did other things. So that's kind of an interesting angle and it needs to talk about the ordning because it can't assume you've played or read storm King's thunder, but it doesn't just focus on the ordning as the only organizational structure of the giants. It also says, no, there's lots of other giants. And this part of the book itself is the one that really grabbed me. Now, when the character option stuff backgrounds, I think are pretty cool. I like, I think that when I buy a source book, Backgrounds are are a good feature of a source book. The idea that it hands me backgrounds that I could then in turn hand to the players and say, if you want to be even more integrated into this campaign setting that we're playing, here are some additional backgrounds that you can pick. I like those better than I like subclasses for a couple reasons. One is subclasses. I, I can never really trust subclasses. I don't know if there's something in them that's either underpowered or overpowered. You know, they're they're so mechanically crunchy. And the likelihood that they were tested as well as other things always makes them kind of like, I don't, I'm not really sure. Now, I didn't really look at the subclasses for Glory of the Giants. So I don't know. I'm not saying that they're broken or anything like that. I really don't know. I just know that like when I buy a campaign setting in general, more subclasses isn't really what I need. I know that that means you can tailor some subclasses that are specific to that particular campaign, and that might be worthwhile for some people. The backgrounds do follow the same new style of backgrounds that we are starting to see in things like the Spelljammer box set and that we expect to see in the 2024 revision of D&D, which is that backgrounds now include feats. And some of these backgrounds have new feats that are in this book, specific feats that are designed for this book. So if you're interested in crunchy, player-focused stuff, it has a little bit of that. I tend not to worry too much about the new the new mechanics. It's it's not new feats are not why I buy a new book. That you know, if I want new feats, I'm gonna wait for something like a Xanathar's Guide or a Tasha's Guide or something like the mid or the 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 Tome of Heroes by by Cobalt Press. Something like that where it's kind of focused on that thing. I don't usually pick up a lot of the new class stuff uh, unless I'm actually running it as a campaign. And then if I find out I'm going to run it as part of my campaign or my campaign, my, my, yeah, I'm going to run a campaign that's focused on this book. Books like the Book of Eventides that Cobalt Press came out. Because we had done some Shadow Road sort of stuff in my Midgard game, I, would, I could take a subclass on one of my players, picked up one of the subclasses that are inside the Book of Eventides. So I guess there's a use for these. I'm generally not interested in them up front. I'm only interested in the new sort of character-focused stuff if I know that I'm going to actually end up running it for my campaign. So in that case, I might have taken a, a deeper look at the specific player player focus stuff. But what really grabbed my attention was the lore. I find certainly as I have gotten older, as I've been playing more RPGs for longer, I am actually more interested in good creative table usable lore than I am in new mechanics. And it's because I again I kind of get back to like I can't really trust 
new mechanics that much. So I don't need new subsystems. I don't need typically books where they've, they've got kind of like a, not a bunch of mechanical crunchiness. And I also look at those books as not lasting as long because I don't know what systems I can play them with and I don't know what system I'm going to want to play it with next. But a, when I have a book about giant lore... And if it's focused on the lore of giants, I know that I could use that with any version. If I wanted to play it with Shadow Dark, I could run it with Shadow Dark. 13th Age, I could run it with 13th Age. Shadow of the Weird Wizard, I could run it with Shadow of the Weird Wizard. Or the 2024 books, I could play with that. Or the 2014 books, I could play with that. So mechanical crunchiness, there's like a level of compatibility issues and things like that. It's like I don't go back to a lot of fourth edition books because they were so mechanically crunchy. They don't really offer a lot for me to think about when I'm running a different kind of system. So when I see a book where it's a 192 page book, but a hundred pages of it is just lore about giants. Well, that hundred pages is lore that I could use for the rest of my life. If I, if I dig the lore, if I dig the way it works, I think it works out well. There's something to consider with this that I think is also something to consider with Fizzband's Treasury of Dragons, and I think is an important consideration, is that you can almost think of this like an opinionated view of how giants could operate in your game. You don't have to do it this way. It's not changing anything. There, there was some talk about like Fizzband's with the whole first world idea that there was a, 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 a progenitor, progenitor rule, world. There was like this you know, one central world that everything else came from and sort of the multiverse idea of all the other worlds sort of spawned from this first world and the dragons are part of the first world creation, the creation story, the creation, the creation lore, the creation legend of the first world that people took that as like, oh God, Wizards of the Coast is changing the lore for D&D. Oh my God, this is the worst thing. And it's like, it's not like you can take it or not. You don't have to do it that way. You can do whatever you want. And if, if you want to pick up Fizzbands because you think, well, that's an interesting take on dragons, then you pick up Fizzbands and take it as an interesting take on dragons. Same way with the way the giants are, are in this book. Maybe your giants are totally different. Maybe the giants in the Midgard world are totally different than the giants that you have in here. But what's kind of neat is like, hey, here's a whole deep thought where a bunch of people spent a lot of time thinking about how the lore of giants could fit into your game and you get to decide what you're going to take, what you're not going to take, whether you like it or whether you don't, or whether you want to take some of it and not other parts of it. And that was something that would kind of dawned on me on this, that like, hey, you could almost think of this like somebody else wrote 100 pages of house rules about what the giants mean in your world. Not even house rules, but just lore, right? Deep lore about what the giants are like. And you don't have to say, well, Wizards wrote this. This is always a big mistake I think a lot of GMs make is because Wizards wrote it, it's canon. It doesn't matter right? Cobalt Press wrote a lot of stuff about giants that's totally different than this. Theirs isn't any less real than the stuff that's in this. And that's actually freeing because it means that you can take parts that you want to take or that you can look at it and say, eh, not for me. Or yeah, it is. And so if you like the idea of the giants and the ordning and the way that giants are structured and the idea that there are giants who broke away from the ordning, like if that, if those ideas kind of, kind of sit with you well, then, then you can, then you can grab this book and you can pick it up. So, that was one thing that occurred to me, but something else that occurred to me about this book when I was reading it and about how it fits into our games and how it makes itself, as I like to say, table usable is something that I think is really worth note noting, which is they could have made a source book, right? That uh, you have a 192 page book like this. They could have instead said, hey, what if we instead did a 192 page source book about the Dale Lens in the Forgotten Realms? That we've been focused on the Sword Coast a lot. What if we shifted inwards and did a whole thing about the Dale Lens? And we wrote a whole book about the Dale Lens. There'd be a lot of DMs that are like, oh, that's really cool. The Dale Lens haven't really been touched in a long time. It would be nice to have a source book that focuses on this. We can have like El Minister's Tower and the Shadow Dale and all the, you know, sort of different players that are there and the big the big C that's there and yada, yada, yada. Except a lot of DMs are like, yeah, except I don't play in the Forgotten Realms. And so none of that is useful to me, right? And my own surveys tell me that those I have surveyed say about half of them play in their own home campaign world. They don't play in them. They don't play in a fixed world. They don't play in like Forgotten Realms. A lot of them that do play, do play in Forgotten Realms. The neat thing about a book like this is it, it can both support directly the Forgotten Realms it can also support Eberron. They talk about Eberron in this. They offer suggestions about how this would be sliced into Eberron. They also talk about how this, this also could fit directly into your own homebrew campaign. You could fit this into a Midgard campaign. So instead of building a source book that's about a location, a specific location, a specific place, and all the details and the politics and the gods and everything else that are surround a particular place, what they did is took, take like a perpendicular slice, almost like one of those big drills that goes into like the Arctic shelf and it cuts a big hole and then you lift it up and you have this one single column of ice that goes, you know, millions of 
the years up to the present day, and you're, but it's still only like two feet in diameter. That's kind of what this is like. It's saying, hey, we're going to dive deep into giants alone. We're not talking about any other types of creatures. We're talking just about giants, but we're going to have a hundred pages of ideas for adventure hooks and political intrigue, relationships, those that are part of the ordning, those that are broken away from the ordning, all that stuff. But it's only going to be focused on giants. And what that means is you can take this book and you can drop it into your own campaign world. You can drop it into any number of published campaign worlds and you can fit it in. And I think that that's a really interesting direction. I think this is, you know, and it's one of these where like through reading this, it's like I can kind of get an idea of what the designers at Wizards of the Coast are thinking about the kind of products that they're making. And I know that they are very aware of having split their audience up back in the, certainly in the second edition days. This happened a lot in the second edition D&D days. That when they focused on particular campaign settings, like, hey, we're going to do a bunch of stuff in Dark Sun, or we're going to do a bunch of stuff for Spelljammer, or we're going to do a bunch of stuff for Forgotten Realms that the people who ended up playing in those particular worlds never went to the other ones, which meant that the products that they would put out were only useful to a particular slice of people. In this one, I think they're really trying to say, hey, anybody can use this book. If you've got giants and, you know, giants are a big chunk of D&D, you can use this book the same way with Fizzbands. Fizzbands is about dragons. You can take that first world idea. You can take a lot of the lore that exists with with dragons and Fizzbands and you can drop it into your game. And I think that, and, and same way with Van Richten's Guide. I loved Van Richten's Guide. It's the, my, you know, my favorite source book in the last couple of years. The, the, my next favorite, my, my first favorite being Eberron. I think the Eberron source book is fantastic. Ravnica is really good. And the, the Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft is an excellent source book. Very good, very table usable stuff. All those domains, all the different Dark Lords, all these ideas that you could take and mush together and pull these domains of dread and drop them in as kind of a little sub world in your own world. I loved it. I used it for my Wild Beyond the Witchlight game and it worked great. And it meant that that book is just really, really useful, that I can use that book over and over again. I can dive in and grab a different idea and drop it in my game. Fizzbands, I felt the same way, and I feel the same way about, about Bigby's. I think Bigby's really has it. Now, again, this is a very table-usable book. It has lots of, role, lots of random tables in it. I'm a big fan of random tables. I love them. Even if you're just reading through for ideas, you don't even have to roll randomly. You can just get these, get these ideas. It makes the book very digestible, very easy to kind of look through and pick up and and get these ideas different skills you know the wealth all this all this sort of idea beautiful artwork i know that there's a whole controversy over the idea of ai ai enhanced artwork that's in here honestly if that controversy hadn't happened i wouldn't even know i think the art is really good i look at it and i when i had the physical book in my hands which i bought by the way i did get a free copy of the D&D Beyond version of this because I am part of a legacy creators group of people who wrote for D&D Beyond in the early days and I still get access to all of the new products that are coming out there. They didn't give it to me as a review copy and I went and physically bought my special edition cover at my local game shop. So this is not a sponsored, uh, sponsored spotlight. That said, I did get the D&D Beyond version for free and that's worth noting. Whole section on like rejecting the ordning just lots and lots of good stuff. So yeah, my, my point is that the artwork is really, really good. I really think that the artwork was was good and I would never have noticed. The idea that some of the artwork in here had been AI enhanced, I totally understand the desire for people who say, we don't, we want art made by artists. I'm on board. I get you. I did a whole section on the show previously about the AI art controversy with Big, Big B. So if you want my opinion on it, you can go look back there. But the short of it is I support artists making art. That's what, I, that's what I support. And Wizards of the Coast, I think, has made it clear that that's what they want too. This was not something that they had intended, yada, yada, yada. You can see my whole thing back then. But I will say that in the physical book, and I think it's missed when you go to the D&D Beyond site. Like D&D Beyond is a really, really handy way to be able to look through source books and have it on your phone and it formats for whatever device you're on. I think that's really useful. I don't think you really get a grasp of the, the, the level of the quality of the artwork unless you have the physical book in your hand. So even though I get a free digital version of this, or even if I had bought the digital version of this i would still want to have the physical book a because i don't trust that dnd beyond will be around forever you've heard me talk all about that but also the, the physical book is beautiful it's a beautiful beautiful book the art design is really good the layout is really good it's a beautiful it's a beautiful book i love this particular piece in general because it shows all these fire giants who are now being led by a drow priest for the elder element of fire or the elder elemental eye neat way that the giants can interact with relationship that's 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 different than just the ordning whole bunch of adventure seeds this whole thing is packed with like different ideas for small adventures large adventures campaigns everything like that and then there is a huge section 
on giant enclaves. There are 18 of these giant enclaves. And the way these work is they are essentially like a two-page spread with a big map on one side. You can see the examples of the maps on one side. And then a description of the environment and what might be going on there and some adventure seeds. It reminded me a lot of the extra locations that were in the end of the Ghosts of Saltmarsh book. If you have the Ghosts of Saltmarsh book, if you go to the back of that book, there's a whole section of like different sort of underwater locations that the characters might go to that you could drop into your game. So these are not full adventures. They're not even really like one page or two page adventures. They're adventure locations. They're places that you can grab and drop into your game. There's 18 of them. They all have really cool maps. These are Dyson, Dyson logo maps that are included in here. And one thing I really like is all of them are fantastic locations. They all have an element to it that makes them you know, bigger than life that makes them bigger than just a mundane place. You don't find like an old warehouse with a bunch of crates in it. It is every, every one of these has like fantastic elements. So all of these are very table usable. You could grab them. You could, you know, if you're hard up for an adventure location, you could grab one of these things up and you could drop it into your game, fill it out, throw your own adventure seeds on there, throw in some of your own monsters and off you go. Really good chunky bit of the book that covers these 18 places, these 18 different locations. And again, makes this book, in my opinion, very table usable. An advantage of the D&D Beyond version is that you get player versions of these maps. So you have some of these maps have are keyed and then there's player versions of these maps that are unkeyed that you could drop into a virtual tabletop of your choice. So that's something that a lot of the products on D&D Beyond have that I think is a, a big advantage of that. So yeah, the giant enclaves, a really cool really cool section of this book that I really I really enjoyed and I thought was a good a good addition. And then, you know, a whole thing about treasures, I didn't really get into the giant treasures. I feel a little bit about the treasures the same way I feel about the other player options where it's like, I, you know, maybe I'll dig into them if I actually run a campaign in here. But I'm more interested in kind of picking up this book to read the big section. The good thing was the treasures isn't a huge part of the book. But then a good chunk of the book is the bestiary. And I'll be honest, I didn't, I didn't dive too deep into the bestiary either. I didn't, I didn't look at them to say like, ah, oh, how, how well are these creatures balanced? In the, in the short run that I did, I definitely saw some monsters that looked like they hit at or above their CR and some monsters that looked like they hit below their CR. So I don't think we've seen, in my opinion, a good normalization of the threat of a monster compared to its challenge rating luckily I have a solution for that, which is Forge of Foes. The book Forge of Foes, we have a nice table in there. That table will eventually be in the Creative Commons so you can just print it out and use it. And if you think you need to tune up monsters in order to be able to hit as hard as a challenge rating should hit, you can tell what the baseline is. And a lot of it is I think that Wizards of the Coast is still overvaluing certain monster features and saying because a monster has this feature, its damage should be less. The problem is the damage is the only thing that really, in my opinion, typically the damage output of a monster is the number one way that monster is going to threaten a group. And if you lower the damage for things like, oh, well, it's draining life or it's got this other ability, it doesn't really work because it turns out that a lot of that stuff is really easy to avoid, especially at higher CRs. And it's lots and lots and lots of high CR monsters. So I didn't, I didn't dive too much into them, but a good chunk of the book are these monster stat blocks. So if you like monsters, if you're looking for a bunch of new high CR monster stat blocks, but obviously particularly focused around giants, a good chunk of the book is on that. But what's interesting is that this isn't just a monster book either. It's not like you buy Bigby's Glory of the Giants and what you got was a, a monstrous compendium that's focused on giants. You do get that. But to me, the real power of that book is that 100 pages of lore and locations and adventure ideas and other things that, the, that, that, that they have. And that, that's in the book that you could grab and you could use that lore and you could use those locations. You can put your own monsters. You can change your own monster stat box. You can do all that stuff, but you can drop it into your own, your own games. So one of the interesting things is that they have these these scions, which are sort of like, I guess, kind of like old ancient avatars of the giant gods that exist, Grolanthar and Skeresis and Thrym and Surtur and Mem Memnor and Stronmus. There's big, and they're all like CR 22 to 27. We'll pick Thrym. Thrym is the frost giant, right? And each of these begin as a cradle. Right. And the cradle, you know, a slumbering scion of Thrym is encased in a cradle is functionally identical to a glacier or iceberg nestled in an alpine valley. So the idea is like 
you know, you see this huge cradle of this thing and the cradle itself is like CR24. So it's got AC20 and 500 hit points, which is pretty good for CR24. The cradle is a container for the cyanothrum and the cradle drops to zero, its body shatters into shards of ice. The cyan instantly appears in the space that occupied and uses the cradle's initiative. So it essentially switches, but first you fight the cradle. Cradle makes two slam or hurl icicle attacks. Slam is, you know, 30 plus 11, 41 points of damage. And bonus action, chilling mist. Cradle magically conjures a cloud chilling mist that fills 30 foot radius. Sphere centered on point it can see within 90 feet. What kind of sight does it have? Dark vision, weird, has dark vision, but it's like a giant glacier. I don't want to know tremor sense. Mist spreads around corners. Each of the creature in the area must a DC 19 saving throw or take 28 cold damage and be able to use reactions until the start. It conjures a chilling mist. So it can do as a bonus action, a s- sort of big cold fireball on top of being able to slam and do hurl icicle attacks, which is pretty cool. And those, those, those seem to be hitting pretty hard. So it does that. It does a freezing breath. You do 500 points of damage to it, and then bang, it jumps into, it turns into its final form, a scion of Thrym, right? And the scion of Thrym is the awoken version of this. You know, here's like a picture of what the scion of Thrym looks like. I don't know how these like, these dudes. And makes multi-pack, one ice attack, two slam, and two slam attacks, or it makes two glacier throw attacks, right? Glacier throw plus 17 36 plus 14 that's 40 50 points of damage per throw and then earth shaking movement moves up to its speed and sends a shockwave through the ground 60 foot radius centered on itself each creature must make a saving throw or lose concentration each creature in the ground of that area is concentrating so it busts concentration that's really interesting interesting bonus action i probably let it do some damage too and it slams around. So it's kind of interesting, but you're basically doing a thousand points, a thousand hit points worth of attacks on these guys. So they are these sort of, I mean, I, I dig this because it's sort of like the big dare monsters that existed in the Final Fantasy games, right? If you played like Final Fantasy games, you could beat the game, but then there were these like huge titans that were out there. And if you wanted to like go test your metal and you're like, yeah, I beat the final boss, but I want to try these big things. You know, you could do that. And and I, I dig the idea that there are these versions of that here in Big Beast. These sort of super boss, optional boss monsters that are out there. And you could tell the players, like they could learn through legends about how these scions work and they could go out there and defeat the scions. It could be pretty neat, but like facing a thousand hit points worth of monsters that are slamming on you like this is going to be, is going to be pretty interesting. So I thought that was an, a, a kind of an, an interesting idea. This seems to be sort of an extension of the mythic monsters that they had tried in mythic odyssey of Theros. I think you also have, I think the dragons also had some sort of mythic varieties where once you beat them, they switched into a different form. This whole idea of like cradles and scions, I think are another, another attempt where the story focuses on, on, on what they do. So pretty neat stuff. Overall, I think Big Bees is a really good book. Is it worth it? That's something you're going to have to decide. 60 bucks is a lot of money for a 192-page book. It is already discounted heavily on Amazon. So you can get it for like $33 on Amazon, which is crazy, right? It's almost half of what's cost already on Amazon. So if you're looking for a bargain, you can get there. I went to my local game shop and picked it up at full price because I wanted the special edition cover and I want to support my local game shop, and I did. You can also, of course, pick it up on, Drive, on, on D&D Beyond if you want to have access to those, those player options. You can do that, and it's also a good reference for it. But you're going to have to decide for yourself. The one last thing I will leave you with for Big B's is that there is a Tribality did a review. Brandis, Brandis Stoddard did a really excellent deep dive into Big B's. So if you're looking for another review that dives deep into all the sections of this book before you decide whether you want to drop your cash on it, please check out this excellent review Brandis Stoddard did. I will link to that in the show notes so you can see that as well. As I mentioned earlier in the show, this show is brought to you by patrons of Sly Flourish. One of the things I wanted to do and one of the things I'm going to do in the talk show from here on out is I'm going to show off a new thing that is available or a new thing or something that has been available to patrons so you can get an idea of the kind of things that you get for being a patron of Sly Flourish. And that today I want to take a look at something which is called Uncovered Secrets Volume 2. So an interesting thing is that the Lazy DM's Companion, which is the last book that I published before Forge of Foes, was built originally as a Patreon book called Uncovered Secrets Volume 1. And what I did originally is just called Uncovered Secrets. And it had a whole bunch of different material in it. Did a whole bunch of different things. And a lot of that stuff I wanted to put into the Lazy DMs Companion. And we refined it and we did editing on it and we did full design on it and we put it in a book and we published it and we printed the book. And that went out as Uncovered Secrets. That went out as the Lazy DMs Companion. All of the material that was in Uncovered Secrets 
that was in the Lazy DMs Companion, I put into a thing called Uncovered Secrets Volume 1, and patrons can still get access to that. It's sort of the raw version of what was in the Lazy DMs Companion. The Lazy DMs Companion has definitely improved from what's in there, but I didn't want to take it away exactly, so it's still there. But I took all of the other stuff that didn't make it in the Lazy DMs Companion, plus other stuff that I've been creating since, has been coming into this book called Uncovered Secrets Volume 2. It is not very likely that this will become another new book. Most of the time, the stuff that's in here is stuff that's pretty one shot, like usable for one specific thing, kind of branches away from the stuff that I think falls into traditional fantasy RPGs. It's stuff that I don't think is generally useful to everybody, but is specifically useful to some people. So I wanted to take a look at some of the stuff that you can get in in Uncovered Secrets Volume 2. Again, you can get Uncovered Secrets Volume 2 as one of the many rewards that you get for becoming a patron of Sly Flourish. Some of the stuff we have in here, it's going to look very similar to the kinds of things we had in Lazy Dames Companion. An ability check alternative. So what are other ways that you can use ability checks other than the standard pick a DC, ask the character to, to, to roll a die, choose the most applicable score. And that's like failing forward, using your skill proficiencies as, as a check instead. Hidden GM checks where you say, what's your ability modifier? And I'll roll behind the screen. Circumstantial advantage and automatic assumption that you're doing using help and guidance. Things like that. Adjudicating complex situations this is sort of my take on like hey instead of skill challenges why don't you try this sort of stuff and it's basically saying like there are ways to track progression there are ways to have complicated situations where it's not just one check or the other and here are some ideas for this that aren't coming up with a super refined set that you might find with something like a skill challenge it's my take on, on a way to do a skill challenge classic style 5e lots of people are looking for like the old school style we see it with shadow dark rpg we see it with you know there are lots of different supplements that are out there that talk about how to kind of make it a little more hard edge. And I was like, well, let me take a take on this. What's like one, what are some things that you could do to give fifth edition D&D a harder edge than it typically has? What are some of the things you can do? Like limiting classes and feats, slowing down level progression, capping the game at sixth level, using backgrounds instead of skills so that basically your ability modifier plus whether or not your background is applicable is what would determine your proficiency bonus instead of using skills. It makes character generation stuff a lot easier. The idea of challenging the players, modifying death saves so that it, things can be a little bit more dangerous, stuff like that. Initiative variants. What are some different ways that you can use initiative in your game? You know, the character wins ties is something I'd use. Static initiative, that's actually a house rule that I use all the time. Around the table initiative, popcorn initiative, slow and fast turns. Those are all available in here. A whole section on home bases. If you wanted to build a home base, you want to use money for things other than just trying to buy loot and a lot of the stuff a lot of time just talk about what characters could do here's how you could sort of build a home base buy one and then upgrade it with sort of mundane upgrades but then also magical upgrades that could cost a lot that should burn pretty much all of the money that that any character would typically have targets and area effects some of this stuff actually did make its way into forge of foes so some of the stuff you will you'll pick up on we refined scott and taos and i refined it more and threw it into forge of foes targets in an area of effect something i've talked about before basically here's a list of different spells common spells and here's how many targets you could assume that that spell hits and you could just tell your player that's what it's got monster generator again right out of you, you will see you'll see a lot of stuff like this in the lazy and in, in, in forge of foes example really simple monsters that you can build lazy solo 5e so here's a way if you want to play 5e by yourself completely no no you don't need a gm and a player just one player what can you do and it's like here's how to use random tables here's how you can you know, build your own scenarios. Here's how you can run your thing. And here's some random tables that you can use to kind of change, change up the effect. And it's a fun way. I've played it this way. I've, I've talked to other players who played it that way. It's a fun thing to do. First level adventure generator. You want to just build a really quick adventure that's designed specifically for first level characters. I have a couple of pages in here. It gives you a map. It's really straightforward. Like, hey, just grab this and run and off you go. I think this is actually also available as the free adventure generator PDF that you get for joining this Life Flourish newsletter. So a lot, I don't know if it's exactly the same, but a lot of the material in it is the same. It might be exactly the same. And then there's a few scenarios that didn't make its way into the Lazy DM's Companion. Death by Dungeon, the idea that you're just, you were thrown into a dungeon and you're trying to get your way out was a scenario that I had. Arena of Fate, the idea that you were thrown into an arena and you're battling a series of monsters, very kind of straightforward way. Here's a whole 
set of generators to help you build that sort of arena. Encounters of the Frozen North. This was when I was running my Rime of the Frost Maiden game. I thought it would be kind of neat to have a set of random encounters that could occur when you're going through the Frozen North. So you can see that there's a bunch in here. One Sheet 5e is one of my many takes on trying to super simplify 5th edition down to something that you could print out on just a couple sheets of paper and take with you. I'm now working on a new version of this called Lightning 5e that's going to be, it actually is, I think, available under Creative Commons license, but I'm still tweaking it to try to make sure it's an actually a good a good and playable lightweight almost a fate like system dreadful incursions you you actually uh, this is a way to kind of take those ideas that you see from van richten's guide and drop them into your world and you can see that it's got some of the domains of dread that are available in van richten's guide to ravenloft are are listed in this and then a monster generator. And again, so we have a challenge rating version of the monster generator. This one you're going to find in Forge of Foes. If you have Forge of Foes, the stuff in Forge of Foes is definitely an upgrade from this, but you can see it there. And then I don't know that this chapter has made it into Forge of Foes. The idea of like rolling lots of checks. If you want to roll a whole ton of different checks, but you only want to use 1d20 to do it, here's a way that you can say like, what's the target number that we're aiming for? What's the number of successes you're, you're looking for? Roll the die and it tells you how many successes out of how many failures you get. A science fantasy generator. I generated this because I needed it for my Numenera game. I wanted to roll like what are different patrons that you have, different quests, locations, conditions, descriptions, origins. One page that gives you a sort of science fantasy generator for those games that are that are that are on science fantasy setting. And then a cyberspace generator. I generated this specifically for the the cyberspacey sort of parts of Numenera, but it could run with any sort of cyberspace based game. But you can see why, like, okay, well, that's definitely not traditional fantasy RPG. That's why it's not included in other books, but it's included here. And then you want to know what my personal house rules are what are the house rules that i use i talked about this on a previous show about thinking about the house rules and i stuck it in here as well so if you want sort of the one page hey what are mike shay what does sly flourish think about the house rules that ha that help streamline 5e and make it just a little bit more playable these are some of the some of the house rules that i use so this is just one of many different supplements that you can get by being a patron of Sly Flourish. You get access to all of this stuff immediately, plus a whole bunch of different generators, a whole bunch of different adventures, Uncovered Secrets Volume 1, the City of Arches Sourcebook, which I've talked about on the show before too. Lots of different stuff you get, but I wanted to give you a kind of a deeper dive in sort of the things that you get there. Thank you. And again, to the patrons, thank you so much. Over on Mastodon, Robin Laws mentioned that he had a new book published. If you're not familiar with Robin Laws, he's a game designer that's been designing RPGs since the 90s. He's, he's credited on many, many different kinds of RPGs for many different systems. Everything from trad, what they call trad F20, which is essentially traditional D20-based fantasy RPGs. He's written for like the Dungeon Master's Guide 2 for the 4th edition version of D&D, but he's also written, he was the designer for Gumshoe, the Gumshoe system for investigation. He's done a lot of stuff with like Cthulhu-based adventures. He's been deeply involved involved in in tabletop rpg design for many decades super smart guy he has a few books in general that i think are really good The probably the number one book that i recommend to his is called hamlet's hit points and hamlet's hit points really hammered into me the whole idea of upward and downward beats the idea that people and players will resonate when good things happen and bad things happen and good things happen and bad things happen so you don't want to necessarily just have like all bad things happen or all good things happen really change the way that i think about rpgs he also wrote robin's laws of good game mastering which is a good way of like thinking about the different kinds of things that different players come to your table with and how you can sort of tie into those hooks to, to, to make their kind of games interesting. And now he's done it for adventure, adventure scenarios themselves in a book called The Adventure Crucible, Building Stronger Scenarios for Any RPG. You can buy this on DriveThruRPG for eight bucks. There is a link in the show notes to pick up the book. And I really liked it. I, I, I picked it up and I really enjoyed it. The book itself is pretty short. It's a 54-page PDF. He refers to it as a chat book. This idea that like, hey, here's this really focused thing that we're going to talk about. The writing is really good and tight and gets the point across. I, I read it like in two nights and really enjoyed it and, and thought it was very useful. And the focus of this book is that there are specific types of adventure scenarios for traditional fantasy role-playing games that we commonly hit. And those five types are the dungeon, the mystery, the chain of fights, survival, and intrigue. And he describes each of these different kinds of adventure scenarios by what are the criteria that, that make it such. The, the dungeon is you're crawling through a dungeon, fighting monsters, going from room to room, picking up treasure and doing that sort of thing. The mystery is an event occurred and the character's goal is to figure out what happened during that event. They don't know what they, they don't know. They may have come in at the end of the event. 
And they're trying to backtrack to learn what the stages of that event were. The chain of fights, as you imagine, is you're fighting a whole series of battles, either in multiple rooms or like waves of combatants from one room to another. Survival is the idea that something is either chasing you, you either have to run from it or avoid it, or you have to find a way to kind of you know, secure an area and battle against it. And then intrigue is you're kind of, you're building up your reputation as you are interacting with different sorts of factions and things like that. Now, the thing that the book, and then he talks on a couple of other ones, like the pic- the picturesque and the drama. The picturesque is the, we explore places just to see them. Like it's fun to kind of go around and just witness, witness the world as you sort of go there. And then drama is the sort of, in many cases, inner character drama that can occur between characters and between characters and NPCs that can kind of build up. For each of these different designs, and he talks about the core activity. The core activity is like, hey, the system that you're playing usually tells you who the characters are and what they're doing in the world. And he brings up that if a game ever says something like, in this game, you can do anything, then you should pull away. What's funny about that is GURP says that, and GURPS is a game that he worked on. Fate also kind of says that, you know, but the individual scenarios for fate don't say that. So I think I'm not sure that, you know, like I think I think that's a higher level rule rather than a lower level rule. But generally, his point is that a role playing game should tell you up front. Here's who the characters are and here's the kind of things that they can do. And uh, one thing that I've caught myself doing is I look at the character sheet for a game very early on. If I want to know what a game is like, I can usually dissect it by looking at a character sheet. And something that my wife actually got me, she, she, she brought this up and I was like, that's really, I never thought of it that way, was that when you look at things like the lists of skills, I always like looked at them as like, whenever I see a game that's got like th- 39 skills or 40 or 50 skills, I'm always like, you know, just give me the four attributes. Like, why don't we just roll ability checks? Like the skills, I, I looked at this when I was looking at a Call of Cthulhu game, a recent Call of Cthulhu game. And I was like, there's so many skills, but I'm like, they're all percentage based. And the percentages are like tiny little increments of percentages, right? It's like 3% different. And I was like, you know, why are we nitpicking about 3% different? It fills half the character sheet. And her point was reading those skills tells you what you can do and tells you what this game is about. And I was like, that's a really good point that that's why there's all these skills. These are all the different things you can do. And that's the instructions, right? And the, the percentages that you roll aren't really that important. Those things are the things that are telling you what you can do. This is why, like, you, when you change your aspects in Fate. So I thought that, that whenever I'm looking at a character sheet, it really tells me that. And I, and I get that idea here. So this, this idea of, like, what's the core activity of the game that you're picking up? What's its design? Shadow Dark RPG, which I'm running in an hour, very clearly shows you what, what those things are. So the scenario structures, dungeon, the mystery, the chain of fights, the survival and intrigue, and then we talked a little bit about picturesque and drama. And then for each of these, he talks about specific aspects of these that are worth considering as a GM that, you know, when you, what's the premise that goes behind this? And do you have buy-in from the players to follow that premise? No one cares about a mystery if no one cares about what happened, right? If your characters don't care what happened, they're not going to engage in the mystery. If they're not interested in going into a dungeon and battling things, they're not going to be there. So what's the premise? And, and, and how do you ensure that the, the players and their characters have accepted that premise? What are the emotional stakes? What draws them? Cutting to the fun. How can you get right to the most interesting part of this and, and kind of skip stuff? And I, I talked about this in, when I was talking about my Shadow Dark RPG, is that I jumped, instead of having like you go to a bar, somebody comes by and says, hey, you look like adventurers that want to have a job we have my, my a friend of ours got kidnapped by bandits and he's at this old tower. If there's only one path, skip it. And instead start them at the tower. You're at the tower. You got here because this guy hired you to go rescue this guy. Here's the scenario. You already accepted it and you're at the tower. And now your choice is how do you want to get into the tower? Jump to that first interesting choice. Like if you don't have choices, narrate it and skip it and get ahead and get to the part where the choices start to show up. What are the obstacles? What are the things in this particular scenario that grab that that are going to challenge the actual characters you know and lots of talk about that where are the turning points so and you know we're just going to look through dungeons we're not going to go through all of them in, in this whole book and if you haven't figured out my argument is you should go buy this book this book is really really good so what's the premise acceptance for a dungeon you know hey if you're playing this 
you said you would do it. What are the emotional stakes? What draws you in to make sure that you want to go there? The MacGuffin in the dungeon. Hey, we want you to go collect. There's an old evil idol in the bottom. It's worth a lot of money, and it's also dangerous if it falls in the wrong hands. Why don't you go down to get it? That way, both greedy players who, who want the money, they can go down to get it, and players who are doing right, right from wrong will want to go get it so that it doesn't fall into evil hands. You know, that can work. Cutting to the fun. How do you jump ahead? Obstacles. What are the obstacles that you can put in front of the player so that they, so they want to find it? There's a lot of typical obstacles. Escalation. How do you increase it? Like what, what makes it get harder as you go? Resolution. What's the, really, what's the fun at the end? Now, one of the things that, and then he talks about mysteries and how mysteries work the same way. And he talks about this whole, this whole thing. Now, one of the things that he talks about in this is hybrid structures. And this is the thing that first got me when I was reading it is I was like, I don't often run just one of those scenarios. I usually mix in some. For example, when I run dungeons, they also have a mystery element to them. It's not usually that you're trying to dissect an event that occurred, but I use secrets and clues as a way for the players and the characters to learn more about the dungeon that they're in, the inhabitants of the dungeon, the plots that are going on there. There's mystery elements to it. So I, I take like these ideas, these 10 secrets and clues, and I sort of weave them into the dungeon when I'm running it. But I still love dungeons as initial structure. Same way with like waves of combatants or that whole idea of fighting, fighting a series of battles. A lot of times I will use that as the final battle in a session or in a dungeon. They go to a big room, there's your big boss, a bunch of minions attack, you kill the minions, a couple of big lieutenants come, you kill the lieutenants, and then you finally get to fight the boss. Those waves of combatants. Survival could also go in there. Intrigue can also go in there. So these different structures that he has for these adventures, a lot of times I bring them together. He doesn't talk a lot about building these hybrid structures other than to say, like, you can do so, but it's going to be harder to do the prep. I actually don't find it to be harder to do the prep for a hybrid structure. I think it's actually pretty easy to drop that stuff in. And in the meantime, it builds, in my opinion, a much richer adventure overall. So I thought it could have been, there could have been a little bit more time spent on the hybrid structures. Connect the obstacles together. Make sure none of our fun ruiners and so he has a table in here about fun ruiners. And this is something I think we can really get into, which when you have an adventure structure that you choose, what are the common pitfalls of using that adventure structure? How can the fun be broken when you're doing that adventure structure? He, call, he talks about a few of them in here, but I actually think that they're probably more. What's the point of escalation and how do you do your resolution? But the fun ruiner is an example of the dungeon. You know, So we have the dungeon here and the fun ruiners for a dungeon are areas that can't be entered or areas that provide only one choice of where to go next. For me, one of the fun ruiners of a dungeon, which I got from Robin Law, is too many downward beats that dungeons are only things that are just constantly you're getting shot with spears and stabbed and skeletons attack you and then specters drain your life and you know can't rest and you can't get out and you know it's just down or down or down or down or down or and so the fun ruiner for me is when it's too many downs and instead you need to have these upward beats that's something that i think is really interesting but you know just even the idea of thinking about your games this way i think is really 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 useful so Excellent, excellent book. I really enjoy this book. Adventure Crucible, Building Stronger Scenarios for Any RPG by Robin Laws. Link is in the show notes. $8. Really good read. I, I really enjoyed it. One thing that I thought was interesting about this, something that I had thought about with this, I had gotten a Patreon question recently who said, like, who do you really, who do you follow and admire, like, in social media that you really like? Like, whether it's YouTube videos or whether it's, like, you know, I don't, I'm not on Twitter anymore, but, like, a Mastodon or other social networks. And one thing that I realized is that, like, I am not inspired by the kind of material that people put up on social media. I, I, I can get inspired by blog articles and podcasts and sometimes YouTube videos, but not, not a lot. The people who are chasing the algorithm on YouTube, I generally don't get anything from those. And social, general social media posts, I, I hardly get anything from. Books like this, I get a lot from. And the stuff that really inspires me as both a GM and as a designer myself are reading other people's work in books like this. And it's worth eight bucks. Even though it's 54 pages and it's a very quick read, the ideas that you get from this enrich me they make me think about the game differently and when i read other systems i i think about the game differently when i think about lore and i think about other worlds and i think about other scenarios and other games and how those will work that all kind of grows in and that like boy if we could my you know rant, old man rant for a quick second but my old man rant and this is speaking to me because i do this all the time I'm like oh i should check mastodon i should read my comments on facebook i should go read a book 
Instead, like go pick up these books and read them because there's so much good information and so much inspiration that comes from these. And that's the, the people that wrote them when they're edited, when they've gone through testing, when they've seen it, the kind of the, the refined thought that we get from these books are so much better than sort of the raw information that's usually like wrapped up in drama and wrapped up in other stuff that we get on other social media sites that books, man, read books. So one of the things that came out for me when I was reading Adventure Crucible, Building Stronger RP- Building Stronger Scenarios for RPGs by Robin Laws, excellent, excellent book, was some of the adventure models that I use that are different than those common models of adventure, mystery, intrigue, wave of battles, survival, that I have different models that I use. And I've talked about some of these models before. An example is like the Seven Samurai model, which is sort of a wave of combatants slash survival model. But it's the idea like it's taken directly from Seven Samurai, a group of villagers or you know, have hired the adventurers to protect their village from an oncoming, on, oncoming onslaught. And the neat thing about it is it's not just one scenario type. The players get to decide how they want to engage. Do they want to defend the village? Do they want to go attack the other people before they defend the village? Do they want to do some reconnoitering? Do they want to recon and see? like well who are these bad guys and what's going on with them and how many are they do they want to go find a powerful artifact that can help them there's so many different avenues that an adventure scenario like this can go that still comes from this really simple premise that a bunch of villagers are being attacked by a bunch of bandits and they need the protection of the characters who the villagers are who the bandits are what the village is like what the base of the bandits are like all of those things can change but that core idea can can work really well and a lot of these kinds of scenario types are the the scenario that I put in the Lazy DM's Companion, right? So in the, in the latter third of the Lazy DM's Companion, I have these sort of adventure scenarios. And so we have like wars, like wh- when you're running a war, when you're running a war, what are some of the different ways that you can have your wartime scenario work out? And I have one page about building like characters in war. And a lot of times GMs run to, oh, I need a subsystem so that the players can actually play different groups in the war. It's like, no, stick to the characters. They just have different types of missions that they go on. They have different things that they do that affect the war. The traitor, you know, this is taken right out of Heart of Darkness by Campbell or Apocalypse Now, this idea that the characters are brought on because there's a traitor that's out there, but the traitor is in a very dangerous land. You have to go across the land. Somebody's protecting the traitor. You're going to have to make your way all the way there through this land in order to find this 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 central bad guy and take them out or or not right and you can change all kinds of different things so who who's the traitor who's the patron what's the motivation to go after the traitor what landscape do they have to go through to find the traitor who's protecting the traitor or who's in between you and the traitor and then where's the traitor hiding right all of those different aspects that we have in, the, in that version the hunger is based on jaws there's a big monster that's out there that's eating people right where what is the creature that's eating people what makes this creature unique among all of its variants that could be out there. Where does it reside? Who's protecting it, right? So you have minions that you can fight. What drives the creature to do what it's doing? And who else is hunting the creature? All of these different variables that can exist. Vengeance for hire, right? This is your John Wick that, you know, somebody hired you in order to go take care of bad guys, right? Who are the patrons? Who, uh, you know, who... Uh, who's the villain that you're hunting? What crime did they commit? Who's protecting the villain? Where does the villain hide? And what complications might occur? That's a common scenario that I like. Protect the village is Seven Samurai. This is the one I was talking about before. Who are the villagers? What are the features of the village? What's the villager's secret? Who are the marauders that are attacking the village? And where do the marauders lair? The Keep is based on a movie called The Keep, which is based on a book called The Keep, which is about a prison that has been built that is shattering and an entity inside the prison is breaking free. There are some groups that might want to break the creature out. There's some groups that might want to break it out in order to kill it. So there's all these sort of complications, but it's all from the central idea that there is a prison, a cell, a keep that is holding back a very powerful creature. I have an adventure in Ruins of the Grender Root based on this. Invaders. You know, this is your very typical aliens. You're getting attacked by a bunch of different things. This kind of gets into the survival waves of horror aspect. The hunt for the relic, right? Straightforward Raiders of the Lost Ark. You're going to hunt to go find a thing. It's hidden in a certain place. There's definitely things that are protecting it, both environmental issues, but also monsters. And there are rivals that are going after it. That's that sort of complication. And then the heist is very common. Who's the target? What's the location? Who's protecting it? What do you have to get through? Who's the final garden? And what complications exist? 
So those are all like examples of adventure models that I use that I think are a mixture of the different ones that Robin Laws has. I think it's really useful to read both of these. I think you should buy both books, frankly. I think it's really useful to read both of these because you'll get an idea of all these different structures. But to me, kind of defining them down to like dungeon and mystery and intrigue and waves of combatants and whatever the fifth one is, survival, that it's actually the really interesting adventures are where those intersect. And I think like that, that's what I got really excited for when I wrote these styles of adventure scenarios where you can see the variables that can exist so that you can make thousands of different types of specific adventures built on these overall themes that all include secrets and clues, potentially waves of combatants, delving into a dungeon, mysteries that are occurring, all this kind of stuff that you can have in there. So, you know, I think it's worth thinking about and you might have your own, but it, it takes a little bit of careful work to understand what kind of scenario works well, because a key to all of these scenarios is choice, which is something Robin Laws talks about in that book, making sure that you're always giving the opportunities for choice, that you are setting up situations and letting the characters navigate them. You don't know the one path they're going to take. You're not just stepping them through from one thing to the next. They're making valuable choices in these things. And all of these scenarios that I have, the characters have choices about how they're going to defend against what they're going to do, how they're going to go in there, where they're going to go. There's all these different sort of scenarios that are going on, different ways that they can come in with a choice. So I think it's a really useful style thinking about that. So I definitely recommend Robin Laws's book. And if you want to see the scenarios that I really hang on to that I think are really useful for running them, the Lazy DMs Companion has those scenarios in it. Let's do some Patreon questions. Every month on the Sly Flourish Patreon, we do, I have a Q&A. Anybody can post a question there. I answer all the questions that are there. Any question that's related to TTRPGs, I answer every question every Friday morning. Some of those questions I move and we talk about in on this show. Some of them even become their own article or their own video that I shoot another time. Carl A. says, with the influx of new 5e systems on the horizon, Tales of the Valiant, C7020, etc., I find myself excited to use them all. Then I realize what a mess it would be. I like the idea of having tons of options and styles for my players, but I'm quickly realizing tracking them will all will be a chore. How are you approaching this expansion of 5e? Sticking with just one version, mixing them together, picking and choosing only mechanics what's the best way to utilize resources coming our way in an effective manner fantastic question and honestly this is going to be a really good question to ask about 18 months from now when we have the, D the 2024 books we're going to have tales of the valiant to be out by then we're going to have a bunch of different 5e variant stuff and then we're really going to know because we're going to have them all sitting on our desk right now we only have like play tests of some stuff we have a little bit from c7020 like uncharted journeys we have some pieces that we're able to kind of include uh, but we'll really know in 18 months. So that'll be the interesting point. But I can tell you what I'm thinking so far. And I think so far, we probably want to pick one central system. That's our core. And so the example is you could say, well, 2014 D&D &D is the, the core system that we're going to use. And that you and the players have that agreement that the core system, the core features are going to, most of it is going to be coming from one system and you could for example pick the 2014 D&D you could instead say we're going to use level up advanced 5e like that's going to be our core system for this right and and the players are expected to have their characters and their books are generally built out of the books from that one thing and the advantage of that is everybody's kind of on the same playing field 90% of your rules 95% of your rules are already set by the system that you choose of those different systems if you say we're going to play tales of the valiant then that's your core system the nice thing is of those they'll be familiar so even though there are differences between level up advanced 5e and the 2014 D&D books they're really close and so people will understand ah oh, that's what a class is that's what a subclass is it's just there's some differences in the classes and there's some other little mechanically differences but generally they'll understand it but you still want to have a core system and then as on the gm side of the screen you are free to choose any of the features or supplements or books or ideas that exist in those other systems to drop in and the easiest example is monsters i am now almost exclusively using the level up advanced 5e monsters menagerie as my monster manual that's my core monster manual that's the one i use when i'm picking general monsters that's the book i pick and no one's the wiser the, the fact that i'm not using 2014 D, D monsters anymore nobody picks up on that right the monster stats work the, the, the same the players they're like wow that maybe they might notice 
wow, that, that white is hitting differently than a normal white does. Or they'll notice some mechanical differences if they're really, really being acute. But, you know, they're, they're generally speaking, you can use whatever you want. And then there are occasions where you want to have some player focus rules. And the idea is like the luck system that Tales of the Valiant has works really well. We like it a lot. And I'm now using it in all of my 5e games. So you could just say, we're going to use the luck system from Tales of the Valiant instead of the inspiration system. And here's how that works. And here's how that describes. You could do some other things in there. You know, there are other, I don't, I don't know if there are other player focused mechanics like the luck system but you could use like the bane system that exists in tales of the valiant for monsters and you would want to explain it to players hey here's how bane works right bane is like an idea that car- that creatures have these bane points that they can expend to do they're like action points for monsters so you might mention like hey these monsters are using this new trick and they're like oh now you might just try it for one monster and just explain how it works for that one monster and see if it works and it doesn't but to me answering your question the best way to, to use all these resources in efficient manners pick one clear system that you, the ones you agree on and then only pick the little bits of systems that you're going to drop in like the exhaustion mechanic from the playtest of the 2024 D game which doesn't seem to have made its way forward which sucks because i really like the exhaustion system but you know you can pick these other little house rules and treat them kind of like house rules they're just house rules that other people have published and you say hey we're going to use this we're going to use this we're going to use we're going to use counterspell from level up advanced 5e because that counterspell is better than the counterspell is in the game and people go oh yeah yeah, I like that. So that's what I would do. Carl, I hope that answers your question. Rain Van D says, I'm running a campaign for two players. One is a Warforged Paladin, AC 19, and the other is a Wizard, AC 13. I'm having trouble creating encounters that give them both a chance to shine. At the moment, the Paladin is taking most of the spotlight and is rarely experiencing any sense of danger because of the high AC and the high damage output. And the Wizard rarely has any impact on the outcome of the encounter. What are ways to challenge them both? So this is one that always that question about challenge and exactly what challenge should be and is and what you can do. Now, one thing is like, it's very easy. And I'm sure many people who are hearing this said, easy, don't, don't attack the Paladin's AC. Use wisdom saving throws. Attack them with other kinds of things. Paralyze them in place. Terrain features that get in their way. There's lots of ways that you can make life difficult for the Warforged Paladin. But that's not necessarily what they want or what you want. And instead, the Warforged Paladin wants to be cool and, and use that high AC without taking away the challenge from the wizard. Now, the wizard has an AC of 13, but with mage armor and shield, that wizard ought to be able to hit 18, right? Like, I mean, first level wizards can hit pretty high AC if they use the right spell. So AC 19 is not out of hand for one. Now, it means that like average everyday monsters are only going to be hitting like one out of four. So one of them is you could use smaller monsters. Now, another thing that helps show the wizard off is you think about what kind of monsters is the wizard in particular good at killing? Lots of low hit point monsters are typically great for wizards. Burning hands, magic missile, fireballs, big area of effect spells are great for wizards to hit lots of small low hit point monsters. And also the nice thing about small low hit point monsters is that the paladin isn't great at them because he can only kill or she, they can only kill one at a time. Now, you might do cleave rules and things like that where the paladin can take them out, but the wizard is still going to be way more effective. So one way to make the wizard look more effective, probably, is lots of smaller creatures. And it's something a lot of DMs don't run because it feels like D&D is meant to be essentially one monster per character. You know, So you tend not to run lots of monsters. I would find ways to do so. And I, you can look on Sly Flourish and look at my rules for running hordes. Forge of Foes talks about running lots of low hit point monsters. You can use things like the minions from 4E style, although they're really easy to kill. But you can do something similar to that. The minion system in Flea Mortals is also a way to run lots and lots of monsters. So there's lots of different ways to run lots of monsters. And I think there's a real advantage in running lots of monsters because the paladin is going to get overwhelmed but the wizard is going to be really good at blowing them away so that's sort of that lightning rod idea putting monsters in there that show off the character abilities your paladin wants to fight undead and demons because they love to smite undead and demons because they get to do extra damage on undead and demons so a really good one is what if you have one really big powerful demon that the paladin gets to fight that hits hard and has a high attack bonus right and lots of little demons that maybe provide pack tactics so that the Warforged AC is, you know, they're, they're getting attacked with advantage every time. It means that AC 19 suddenly becomes a lot less useful when you're getting hit with advantage. Now they're getting hit half the time instead of quarter of the time. And the wizard has something to blow up. 
with all of its spells, with all of their spells. So those are a couple thoughts, but don't, don't just go for the things that you think counter countermand or count, contradict the high power of the characters. Instead, lean into it and show them those things. This whole idea of lightning rods. You can search on Sly Flourish for lightning rods. But this whole idea of like lean in on the things the characters are good at and give them those things to fight. You just have to find the things that the wizard is particularly good at fighting. Like I would assume lots of small creatures. Sean H says, as a DM, what methods do you use to encourage party talk and banter? I find games often center around conversations between NPCs and PCs rather than the PCs themselves. I want to encourage more party talk as I believe it leads to more memorable moments for everyone while giving the DM a chance to sit back and watch. A couple of things. One is, you're, you maybe talk to your players about it, a break character, maybe before a game and say, hey, one of the things I'd love to see more of, and I want to see if you guys want to see more of this is inner character talk. Like, you know, are you guys interested in that? Some players maybe say like, ah, not really. It's not really my thing. So you don't want to force people to do it. I've seen this happen where I've seen like some players like they want to engage and other players like, I don't really, I don't, I'm not, I don't want to do that. Right. They weren't into it. They were, they were kind of like focused on the game itself. So you want to make sure your players are on board with it. But a couple of ways you could do that is kind of, you know, asking, I, I really like these campfire tales, right? This idea that you're sitting around the campfire, either for a short rest or a long rest. And you ask the players, Hey, what are your characters thinking about right now? What they think about what's happened what do they think about where they are where do they think they're going to go and they might come up with something and then you could say you know ask one of the other kids how do you feel about what they just said and they and you can kind of like it's like couples counseling for a group right you're, you're going around and kind of saying well, how do you feel about what that person did or you could even ask a player directly hey how do you feel about what Bruno just, you know, how do you feel about Bruno's new thing that he picked up with the cult? Or what do you, what do you think about the fact that Rohalan has now kind of gotten back together with his former mentor who turned out to be a vampire Marilith lady? Like you can talk to, you know, ask the players to talk about each other and it's going to be a little weird and awkward, which is why it's, you want to be gentle about it and why you want to, you want to kind of bring in you know, find, find those opportunities, but be gentle about how you're bringing them up because some people may not be into it. Some people may not be thinking about it, but there are, I think there are alternatives. There are opportunities for you to kind of act as a facilitator between different characters to kind of get them to engage. And hopefully that means they'll start to engage directly with one another when they get more comfortable doing that. Friends, I want to thank you all for hanging out with me today while we talked about all things in RPGs. If you enjoyed this show, once again, please consider becoming a patron of Sly Flourish. You get access to all kinds of things like Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and 2, dedicated Discord server, the Patreon Q&A, lots of different stuff you get for being a patron of Sly Flourish. You can also pick up my books at the Sly Flourish bookstore, but the best way to keep in touch with all of the different things I do, the articles I write, the tips I give out, the videos I produce, is to be is to subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter. It's absolutely free to sign up. You get a free adventure generator PDF and you get a weekly RPG related article, which includes links to all of my other videos and all the other stuff that I do every week on Tuesdays. Thank you all very much. Have a great day and get out there and play an RPG.